Welcome to the Sunday Times Politics Weekly, where, as always, we explore the big political stories of the moment. I'm Mike Siluma, and thanks for joining us. This week on the Politics Weekly, we're reflecting on the public protector's leaked preliminary report, which seems to have exonerated uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa over the Palapala scandal. Uh, we also look uh, as well at uh, the question of uh, public accountability for our judges and why it seems to take so long to bring them to book when they stray. Uh, joining us for this episode of the Politics Weekly is Franny Repkin, who's the Sunday Times legal correspondent, as well as Dr. Figile Villagazi, uh, who's been on the show before, who now teaches politics at the University of the Western Cape. You asked Mr. Ramaphosa to sit down first. I understand you. I need to put on my big girl panties and keep going. You can't have two speakers standing at the same time. Security services of the Republic of South Africa, you may intervene. There's been several attempts on my life. Lower that hand. It's not the president is accused of that serious crimes. In order to pursue the greater good, you have to enable some people to eat a little bit. Corrupt people do not eat alone. They have a spider web. I now suspend the proceedings. I now suspend the proceedings. I have warned you. Welcome to the both of you. Shall we start with you, Franny? In the last week, there was a lot of uh, excitement about the leaked uh, public protector's report into Palapala. And the, the, the leaning of a lot of media was that, oh, it's a, it's a victory of sorts uh, for the president. What, is, is that a correct reading? I it? think so. I think it is a victory for the president. More so if you actually read the report, because what you see there is a very diligent investigation, very thorough where um, the public protector's investigation team followed and tracked down almost every role player that you can think of. However, what we shouldn't forget is that even though it was thorough, it was a narrow investigation. There are areas around the Palapala burglary that the public protector specifically did not go into Mm -hmm. because they are being looked at by other agencies. So Things related to exchange control, she didn't go into. Things related to criminality, she didn't go into. There's some evidence in there related to what the iPad is investigating that she didn't make findings on. So that still is outstanding. Okay. Just cryptically, because not, 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 not everybody follows these developments that closely, but also because in, in South Africa, as you know, there's a new scandal, new, new controversy every day. Yes. In the, what was the background to the public protector's involvement in the Palapala issue? Well, what I, was she investigating? Well, after the story broke that um, Mr. Arthur Fraser had laid this criminal complaint with the police about this burglary, Um, the ATM opposition party laid a complaint with the public protector and then the DA also laid a complaint and then there were two complaints from members of the public as well and they relate specifically to breaches of the executive ethics code relating to acting unethically in undertaking paid work other than the work that you are allowed to do as a member of the executive that's the one and then the other is abuse of state resources 
to investigate your private business, and that is in the context of a conflict of interest. So as a member of the executive, you can't put yourself in a situation where you expose yourself to a situation where a conflict might arise between your personal interests and your and your interests as an office bearer. So those are the that's what's in the the executive code of ethics. So they alleged those breaches that arose from what happened at or what was alleged to have happened mm-hmm. at that ro- um, burglary at Palapala. Mm-hmm. What, what, what does the code say? Is it saying that if you are a member of the executive, you may not run a business or be involved? It's saying in a, that what, you, what you cannot undertake any other paid work. So one of the issues that is an interesting one from a legal point of view is what does that mean? What does engage in paid work mean? And the public protector looked at some of the law around this. It's not something that has gone to the courts before. And she took quite a narrow definition to say that you must, it must be about receiving remuneration mm-hmm. and said that the president did not receive any remuneration and was not involved in the active day-to-day running of Palapala. And therefore, he did not engage in paid work. She said that that is a different consideration to what a financial interest is. Okay. So he does have a financial interest in Palapala, but when it comes to financial interests, you you only can't have financial interests if they can possibly give rise to a conflict of interest. And looking at his financial interest, there is no conflict of interest she found. Mm-hmm. So she distinguished between those two. Okay. Of of course, we, we, we're discussing all of this subject to the report being, A, being leaked and B, being preliminary. Yes. So it could change. It could change. And what we must not forget about this is that it's, I, I'm not sure what a preliminary report, this is a Section 7-9 notice. So it's what happens with a public protector is that they do their investigation and then they have to notify anyone who may be interested or affected by their findings and say, this is what we intend to find and do you have Mm -hmm. anything to say about it? So we are expecting responses and that could change the outcome. Mm. You you mentioned other processes, you know, legal or quasi-legal processes that that are on the go. But what, what would you say is the worst thing that can happen if the final report comes out maybe with unfavorable or negative findings, you know, against the, 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 the president. Could he go to jail? Could he, you know, what, what could happen to him? I mean, I, not, I don't think the public protector can send the president to jail. Hmm. The, but the public protector could refer any factual findings or factual discoveries that she makes to the to the police, which has happened before for criminal investigation. The facts that we have right now would not indicate it going that way, but who knows what could happen. But breaches of executive ethics code, serious breaches can result in serious consequences, Mm -hmm. not criminal consequences. I don't think that that could happen. Mm -hmm. But um, depending on, on what could come back from the interested parties if it were to change her mind. It's difficult to speculate about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And how, how long is it going to be before we, we get a final report? You know, Are there any estimates? Or? I, I'm not sure. I think that, that they have 10 days, but then she still has to incorporate. And if they put it, if they come back with anything, then she might need to investigate further. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. Hebra Mike, mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, okay. Hey, Dr. Villagaz, I'd like for you to come in here because you, a uh, friend here, look, look, looks at things from a legal or legalistic point of view. But you, you're the politician of the three of us right now. So, so when you look at the Palapala scandal, what, how, how would you assess its impact on the presidency of Cyril Ramaphosa? Now, Mike, um, good afternoon also to, to the listeners. You know, if you look at the situation of this interim report at a political level, it has got varied consequences in a sense that you, if, you, if you are an ordinary citizen of South Africa, You've heard about the Palapala scandal and what the president has been alleged to have done. And then the public protector comes with this interim report to say the president has not been found guilty. There are a number of questions that stay in your head, right? One of the questions is that um, how is it possible that the president cannot be found guilty when there have not been uh, issues uh, relating to the president speaking to the nation and taking the nation into confidence around the tax-related matters? whether the president really has had access to these dollars. How did they end up under the president's couch? How did the, the president uh, end, 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 ending up not paying the tax in relation to these issues? You know, so that's number one. But also generally around the fact that the president owns a farm, a simple mathematics of this matter. As a citizen of the country, it tells us that if the president owns a farm, even if the public protector says that the president did not uh, receive any remuneration from what happened around the dollars, the point of the matter is that the president is the owner of the farm. The president is the manager or the executive of chief executive officer of the manager at the farm, right? So the president also has got uh, has done certain conversations in relation to what has happened at the farm, which means then that. Even if the president does not receive remuneration directly at this point, somehow the investments that are related to the farm are proceeds that the president is going to benefit from, whether at the current moment or in the future. And that is happening whilst he is the president. So it, it speaks to Section 96 of the Constitution, Pramike, and to listeners at home to say, how then can we say in that context that the president has not violated his oath of office because it speaks to the conduct of cabinet members and the president is the number one cabinet member in this particular case who is not expected to undertake any other paid work. And if you own a farm or any business for that matter in South Africa, it is known. Whether that business is paying you money at this point today or tomorrow, the point of the matter is that you are a chief beneficiary financially of that particular business arrangement. And, and I think at a political level, these are the questions that are sitting with citizens to say, how is it that the public protector was blinded you know, on, on these matters? Uh, can, can the public protector explain to ordinary citizens of South Africa to say how is it possible that the president has not violated Section 96B of, of being inconsistent on these issues? Because the president did not account. Even Section 95 and Section 86 speaks about issues of accountability. The president has been silent throughout this issue of Ipalapala. Mm. You know, and that there, are, there are simple things that matter to an ordinary citizen of South Africa to say, could it be, Ramike, could it be that a president has used his position as a president to enrich himself in this particular regard or, 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 or to, to maneuver the situation? As, of course, there are certain allegations around the fact that he probably has done that. So the public protector does not take us into that place of 
confidence. The report is very shallow. The report is highly superficial when it comes to those issues. And I think I think the legal experts are telling us that as I've listened or also just now. So so for me, those are the political questions that matter than to say facing 2024 elections, how do you as the current president of the ANC expect that citizens will vote for you? having not taken them into confidence, having dealt with the manner in which the ANC has dealt with this issue at the National Assembly, literally, literally shoving it down the drain, literally blocking a conversation even at the, national of, at the level of the National Assembly. Parliamentarians were never given a chance to actually engage on this matter because the ANC voted it out of parliament, mm. you know, and that is what is happening here with the public protector. The public protector is doing the same, Pramaik, making sure that citizens don't even go further to question Palapala. The president has not been found guilty. So so, so what is that? So for me, that is, that is, that is, those are the issues that I think are key. You can't just leave it at that point. There's some level of depth that I think as an ordinary citizen of South Africa, uh, one would expect um, from a person that is our first resident of the country, a person that is likely to be a president of uh, South Africa should the ANC uh, become, you know, a leading political party in, in post-2024. And, and, and unfortunately, unfortunately, from where I'm sitting, I, I think it, it does compromise the president politically. Mm. Uh, this report, even if it's interim, and I'm hoping that when it comes a, a report that is permanent, that the public protector will apply her mind into these gaps. Okay. Otherwise, it is likely to be a report that will compromise the president towards 2024. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think I think although you're coming from, from two separate uh, perspectives, uh, yourself, uh, Dr. Vilagazi and, and, and Freni uh, uh, Repkin with, with us here, there, there, there is consensus that there's there are a lot of unanswered lingering questions around this case. And the, the we probably will get a clearer picture or, or come to a a more definitive conclusion once because as as Fran is saying there are other agencies which are still busy with their investigations so probably some of the questions that are outstanding will then be answered uh, by by, the, by by those agencies but you you are talking Dr Villagas almost about a credibility question for the president almost irrespective of what processes are going on you, you from a political point of view Yes, I am, because credibility and reputation matter when one goes to the polls. At a political level, uh, we know that we vote for people because of what they represent. So when South Africans go to the polls in 2024, um, you vote for charisma, you vote for personality, you vote for character, right? You vote for trust. And you are looking at these for these things in the person that you are saying will take South Africa into a different place. Right, whether that place is about service delivery, changing the situation, uh, giving us a better life as citizens. So those are the things that you're looking for, and you want to have a candidate that has been able to convince a voter that I do have that reputation that you're looking for. I am the person. Uh, I am Tumamina, which is you know the president's uh, uh, campaign, which which is the campaign that made him really the president of this country. So Tumamina to where? Tumamina, when you can't really uh, take the president, the, the, the country into confidence around issues of parapala. So, so that is me, what I'm touching on here mm. to say, let us make sure, or the public protector, make sure, or those who deal with these issues at the legal level, uh, perhaps also at the level of the public protector, because the public protector has got a constitutional mandate 
a constitutional mandate to hold parliament accountable and to play a role of oversight. And as they are really doing this work around Palapala, um, they need to be very, very careful, uh, the public protector, that she, she does not necessarily lean towards a kind of a report that will compromise the president in terms of reputation, mm. Mm. in terms of, of charisma, that the South, Africa, the South African citizen is looking at is looking at, at this point. I mean, Pramayaki, why I'm touching on these issues is because we know the level of trust within society as we speak uh, in the remaining couple of months as we go towards the polls is eroded. Uh, the voter is so divided at heart and at mind, right? It needs something that will say, yes, this is it. The voter doesn't know at this point whether to vote for President Ramaphosa or for Helen Zile or for Julius Malema or for a coalition of some kind. And that's a difficult place to be. So you need concrete concrete things at this point. Yeah. In the context of Palapala, you know, the we need to be taken to that place. And, and, and that's why I'm touching on these things. Reputation mm. matters, credibility matters. And it is very important that this report takes the country into that mm. place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, friend, I'd, I'd like for you to come in here because ju just in relation to the loose ends of the scandal, you know, in other words, different elements, the legal, the ethical, the exchange controls and you know the, all the different aspects that are thrown up by by by, by, by this issue the agencies dr villagas is concerned that the public protector didn't go to other places that ordinary people might have expect would have liked to you know she, she hasn't that she hasn't answered questions that ordinary people would have liked to be answered mm -hmm. now there are different agencies which are doing the hawks and and all of that do they talk does the, does the constitution say they must talk or does the constitution, you know, demand that they work separately? Talk to each could, other. Could, yes. Um, could they talk? Interesting question. Um, because there are different investigations. For example, the public protector did an investigation. The hawks are doing something else and other people are doing other things. So SARS is, is prohibited from talking. Mm -hmm. um, taxpayer information is highly confidential. So SARS's hands are tied. It's by law not allowed to share that information with mm -hmm. anyone, um, unless by court order. There are exceptions. Um, and recently, um, one of the exceptions is when the taxpayer themselves gives consent. So recently, SARS made a statement saying that, it had, that the president had actually given SARS consent to reveal mm -hmm. his taxpayer status as far as Palapala was concerned and therefore SARS was able to reveal that he and the is it Tabanyoni the, the official name of yeah, Palapala mm. is fully tax compliant so they so SARS has cleared him on on that score on the reserve bank it's interesting in the report the public protector said that the investigation team put in questions to the Reserve Bank and were sent packing by the Reserve Bank saying that issues of exchange control regulations, that's exclusively our domain. Mm -hmm. We are investigating. Mm -hmm. um, and that investigation is ongoing. Then on IPED, IPED did give information to the public protector, quite disconcerting information in the report, but no findings were made. I checked in with IPED today. Their investigation is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they are, I mean, all law enforcement should be cooperating with each other. Mm -hmm. um, 
as, as far as they are lawfully able to in terms of the their legislation or what governs them and their policies, mm. I would say that's probably the general position. Mm-hmm. So, so these investigations could go on beyond next year's election, conceivably, or some of them. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because it looks like there's no co- central coordinating place which says we've got to finish by whenever. Like they're going at their different paces. I mean, I think it would be very wrong for any law enforcement to be even thinking about an election mm. as something that should be motivating them to speed up an investigation or slow down an investigation. That's not something that law enforcement should be thinking about. Mm. They shouldn't care. Mm. Mm. Like like any other criminal investigation, they should be treating this mm-hmm. like any other criminal investigation. And whether there's an election or not, the president, yeah. Cyril Ramaphosa, is just like any other criminal mm. suspect mm. for the Hawks. Mm. He must be investigated the same way as any other. Mm. So I don't think the fact that there's an election should play any role in that. But all investigations should be done as quickly as possible. Um, and criminal investigations, the longer they take, the harder it is to find the evidence that you need. Yeah. Mm. But we also know that the police are slow at the best of times. So I, mm. I, I don't know how long mm. it can take yeah. or how yeah. long it would yeah. take. Yeah. Earlier on, I was saying, you know, that, you know, our country is, is one of those countries where there's never a dull moment. There's <laughs> always a new thing <laughs> happening, new fight, new it's controversy, new the other, new shock. Yes. Now, the, the other matter of this week, mm-hmm. uh, the two judges, the two arms deal judges, right? Yes. I, I thought that if, if you're a judge, you do your work, you wrap everything up and you walk off into the sunset and nobody's going to come back after you once you've retired. Now, That's Judge Siriti, yeah, <laughs> Judge Siriti, and yeah. uh, and Judge Musi are finding themselves in a bit of a pickle mm-hmm. after their retirement. Yeah. They were the judges who were sitting on the, the so-called arms deal uh, commission, which investigated the procurement of you know of armaments for 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 for, for the for the for, for the defense force. Now, what what is the issue here? What, why are they being brought back in, in you know under public scrutiny? So what happened was, after that report came out, there was, there was a lot of criticism of that report for various reasons. And then the report was then challenged in court to say, not that they wanted to reopen the whole inquiry, but it was taken to court on the basis that the Judicial Commission and the, the report that came out of it was irrational because it didn't. The, the commission didn't do the basics of what it was supposed to do, mm-hmm. and that case was successful, and the report was set aside. But that was by the Pretoria High Court. Following that, Open Secrets, which is an NGO, then laid a complaint of misconduct against the two judges that sat on the panel of the arms deal inquiry. That's. Um, Justice Siriti and Justice Musi. And it went to the Judicial Conduct Committee and the chair for the, the chair of the Judicial Conduct Committee at the time was Justice Zondo, who's Chief Justice Zondo now was Deputy Chief Justice at the time. And what happens when, when something goes to the JCC, the first thing that happens is that the chair will look at it and will decide is if if, if I just take this complaint on its face without hearing the judges, would it, 
merit gross misconduct mm-hmm. finding. And he looked at it and he said, just on its face, it would. So he referred it to the committee. And then the committee was supposed to meet to decide whether they should, how they should move forward. And the next thing is Justice Sariti and Justice Musi went to court. And they said, no, 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 we're retired now. You can't be complaining about retired judges. Retired judges should not fall under the disciplinary mm-hmm. regime. Even if there's there's an element of misconduct or... or yes, they're saying that... And even if the complaint arose, the conduct that's being complained of arose whilst they were still judges. So they... And and their their argument is a very narrow legal one. They're saying that the Constitution says that you're a judge for a certain amount of time, Mm -hmm. and and it refers to national legislation. The relevant national legislation is the the Judges' Remuneration and Conditions of Employment Act. And according to that act, you're only a judge until until you retire. And then the JSC Act comes in and says, no, 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 for disciplinary purposes, you're a judge forever. And and mm-hmm. they're saying that that's unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. So the JSC then said, no, as far as we're concerned, you get paid as a judge forever. Mm-hmm. And you are accountable as a judge forever. And so this was the argument mm-hmm. that was in court mm-hmm. this week. Okay. All right. So essentially, they don't want to be to be called upon to account. Over the, they're saying that it's unconstitutional okay, for them yeah, to be. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's not that they don't want to. It's yeah, unconstitutional yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> for right. them to. Be, yeah, yeah. Yes. It's like deep legal speak. You know. But the the important thing, I mean, apart from their particular case, but the important thing for me is the implications that it has broadly, because judges, we know how long these complaints take. They take very long, so it means that. If there is a complaint and you're two years from retirement or one year from retirement, the chances are you're not going to be held accountable because these things take forever. Mm. Why, it, why do they take forever? Is it not the judges I mean, who always say justice denied? No, it, justice delayed. It's my, I, I, it's such a good question. I, and I don't know the answer. It's one of the things that I'm constantly um, tr- seeking answers mm. to as a journalist. Mm. Okay. Let, let, let me ask uh, uh, Dr. Vilagas, uh, just lastly, you know, on, uh, talking about judges, you know, th- there has been a tendency, you know, particularly by politicians, you know, to, to attack judges and the judiciary. Uh, I think at some point the favorite word was, was uh, judicial overreach, you know, when the politicians didn't like what uh, uh, the, the judges were, 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 were doing. The tendency of politicians casting aspersions either on judges or the judiciary generally. Where does it come from? Because my understanding is that the, the Judicial Services Commission, you know, the, the panel that chooses, you'll correct me here, friend, if I'm using that, that, that chooses the judges, includes politicians. So at what point do politicians feel that actually they are now at liberty and why do they do it in your view? Ramaik, the issue of judges and the judicial system in the country um, is not helping us uh, in a sense that, I mean, just in the context of the Amsterdam, we know that this case, you know, of the former president Jacob Zuma and, and others is sitting in court for more than 15 years. 
you know, and I think the legal experts would probably even know better than I do in that regard. So it is for that reason that uh, judges um, are at a place where they need to assist in terms of prosecution. They need to assist in terms of fast-tracking you know, uh, uh, justice. But what we have seen in the context of the arms deal is that this this case has been lingering in the courts for so many years and for reasons that Freni put so well also in terms of just the credibility of the judges that are, are sitting on that case. And I mean, citizens have been asking as well, what have they done to Mama Patricia Dillon? Because she was one of the spokespersons against this, you know, when she was still with the Pan-Africanist Congress, also with good, and now she's a minister. And she's silent about these things. So it is for that, for those reasons that there are political uh, tactics uh, that seem to be playing themselves in relation to um, either influencing judges towards a particular way. I mean, there are some some of those allegations, you know, in, in terms of, of, of the Chief Justice Uzondo, for example, we know that people have said so many things about the Chief Justice and uh, not just in the context of the arms deal, but just in terms of the relationship with the president, you know, that uh, the president is, is seen to be enjoying. So it is for those reasons that politicians then tend to be skeptical, and not just politicians, but ordinary citizens to say, is the judicial system in South Africa helping us to move the country closer to a place of justice? you know mm. or not mm. and i think the answer is on the wall in the context of the arms deal clearly justice has been delayed here and it has been denied the country is still sitting with that case we do not know whether that case will ever be resolved people who are implicated in that case will probably even die and they will not be held accountable including the judges but also even the alleged perpetrators uh, you know who are former members of or, 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 who are former heads of states like in the context of former president jacob zuma but also related others who are, who are implicated so so it's for those reasons that mm. we never see justice within the judicial system in the country and something needs to change the pramic. Uh, that's what I would point out. A friend, you wanted to say something. Is it a problem of the judges or is, is it a problem of something else? If, if you have a, 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 a case that goes on for such a long time, I'm thinking if I, I were an individual in, and I, I was wronged and, and uh, the person who wronged me is still walking around because the case is not concluded, how would I feel? I, I mean, the the justice system is slow. I don't think anyone can deny that. And I think for people who are watching, I can totally understand the frustration mm. when you're watching that. But I think it's very important that we understand where that slowness is coming from. Mm. Because I think most of the time, it's unfair to blame the judges for that. Mm. So taking, for example, the case, the prosecution of the former president, mm. which is the example mm -hmm. that we've just been talking about. Mm. That one, to, to put that at the door of the judiciary would be completely unfair in my view. Mm. Um, so you think it's a system thing? No, I mean, one, it's, I, I think what I do think that we, we really need to give some thought to is what we're seeing now we have a, a rights-based culture in South Africa and a constitution where if you are an accused person, you have certain constitutional rights, and those are very important. They're, not, they're much less important for high-powered former mm. presidents than they are for normal people who are arrested for shoplifting mm. or for stealing chicken from checkers. That's when they become really important, and yeah. that's why we need them. Mm. 
but they apply to everyone. But what we see is that when you have money and you have power, you can abuse those rights to delay and delay and delay. Mm. I don't know if you read a story in the Business Day recently about a businessman called Porrit, mm. who's mm. been delaying his mm. criminal prosecution mm. for years and mm. years and years just mm. because of how much money he has. Sorry, you want to yeah. wrap up? No, okay. Yeah, um, I think I'm very I, I passionate think, about this issue. Tip, I think it's a, but, I think it's a topic that that might be but, worthwhile for us. But to, all to I'm come trying to say to, is that we, we we need to be careful about identifying where these delays come yeah, from. Yeah. Because a lot of the time we can't lay them at the feet of the judiciary. Yeah. But ir- irrespective uh, of that, mm. someone you know would be justified to say something has to be done. Yes, about I totally it, to agree with that. Speed up things, you know, I because totally agree with yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Okay, so so let, let, let's wrap it up uh, there on mm. the Politics Weekly for this week with my guest, uh, friend Repkin, who is Sunday Times legal correspondent as well as the Dr. Figile Vilagazi, who now teaches politics at the University of the Western. Cape. We really appreciate your time. I'm Mike Siluma. Until next time, do stay safe, stay blessed, and let's do good for our country.